Okay, hey, I'm looking forward to this. I've been, I, don't, I don't know if any of the rest of you here have been enjoying our time considering the fear of God, but I have been enjoying it, and so we're going to continue with it for some time. Um, look, uh, as we begin, here's a thought. There's a strange thing about people. You might be familiar with this. I, I certainly see this, this pattern in myself where we are drawn to things which are dangerous. Like, we, we like them. Um, I, I have a good example. I have a fear of heights. Um, the older I get, the worse this fear seems to become. Um, when I was young, I used to be able to move past it and get on with climbing all over mountains and stuff, but no longer. I now feel dizzy at the top of a staircase. Um, and I have a photo here of young Matt and young Elise at a place called King's Canyon in the Northern Territory. And what you'll notice about this photo is that our feet are dangling over the edge of a significant cliff. You remember last week I talked about losing respect for dangerous things, mucking about with a racehorse. This is a photo of two young people losing an appropriate respect for the place where they are. No one should ever do this. That's what I think about that. And as my, the way my fear has gone, I can now barely look at that photo. I find the entire thing discomforting. There's another photo of the same cliff that we were dangling off, just to give you a better sense of the scale of the thing. Um, that photo is what I call blatantly stupid. I, when, I, when I look at it, I feel anger at the silly young man needlessly risking the life of his loved one. Um, what, are, what are silly things to do? All of that is to say, Kings Canyon frightens me. It's a scary place. It is also one of my favorite places on planet Earth. It is absolutely stunning. It's gorgeous, beyond belief. If you haven't been there, you need to get there. People talk about Uluru being worth visiting. Not far from there is a place called Kings Canyon, better in every way. It's probably the most wonderful place in Australia. I adore it. And isn't it strange how those two things can sit side by side? That fear and adoration can coexist. It's a weird thing. There is, there is something thrilling about being in a place which is immense and wild. It simultaneously makes us frightened and delighted. There is something about that um, in our subject for today, the second week in our series on the fear of the Lord. Last week, we attempted to uh, describe a balanced understanding of what the fear of God means. We began by saying what it doesn't mean. We saw that it doesn't mean a constant fear of punishment, which undermines our security in grace. God is not an angry tyrant. But we saw that what it does mean is an awareness of the infinite gulf that exists between God and us when it comes to power and significance. We learned that we aren't his equals and that it is important that we understand just who we are coming to when we worship. Uh, the old English Puritan Thomas Watson defined the fear of God for us. He said it is a, it, that it is a divine fear, which is the reverencing and adoring and that's our word for today, adoring of God's holiness. The setting of ourselves always under his sacred inspection. The infinite distance between God and us causes this fear. You see, from this point on in our series, we, we are now going to start turning our attention to not just the fear of God as a concept, but to the effect that the fear of God has in our lives. Our theme for today is that the fear of the Lord 
is attractive. When I say attractive, I don't mean that the fear of God makes me attractive. Sadly, for some of us, that ship sailed years ago. I mean that a healthy fear of God makes God more appealing, not less. Like, like the canyon, it makes him seem grander, more lovely. The fear of God draws us toward him in worship and wonder. The fear of God produces worship. It's an important context, an important, important idea. Um, let's consider our text for today. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 4. Uh, this account, it takes place in the relatively early days of Jesus' public ministry. He's still teaching beside the Sea of Galilee when the first crowds were starting to gather. Noise has just started to get out that there's this person traveling around the region who may have been sent by God. He has gathered his disciples to himself and has a following. We pick up the story in verse 35 of chapter 4. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Please remember that amongst the, the twelve, there are a couple of fishermen. These are men who know their craft. And so if those people are starting to worry that this storm is more than just a nuisance, this is a significant storm. This is not mere panic. <laughs> How is Jesus coping with the storm which is threatening to swamp the boat? Verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Like, like telling a barking dog to sit, you know? Sit. Good boy. And the wind ceased. And there was great calm. I think for those of us who have been around the Bible for any length of time, this story can become quite familiar. And much like the holiness of God, in familiarity, it can lose its shocking nature. A man woke up and told a storm to stop. And it did. Can you get your head around that? I, I love it when people say to me things like, uh, I think Jesus was just a moral teacher. <laughs> when this account was written by somebody who was there, who knew Jesus and who went to his death insisting that this happened. Jesus was not a, a mere man. He was the God-man. God himself come in the flesh, the creator and sovereign of all things, sitting in a boat. Can we, how do you even begin to just untangle the implications of that moment? Storm, stop. Yes, master, says the storm. What? 
What does that mean? Like, what if he has that kind of authority? What other authority does he have? If he has that kind of power, what are the limits of his power? How do you even begin to process that experience? And then, of course, there's the moment, I'm in a boat with him. I'm not his equal. There's nowhere I can go. The obvious next question is, if he can do that, what can he do to me? How did the disciples respond to this new awareness that they had just gained concerning who Jesus is? Verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Verse 41 is significant. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this then? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Notice here that the disciples were filled with fear after the storm stopped. Do you see that? When the storm was going, they had one kind of fear. We are going to perish. But when the man in the boat displayed his authority over the weather, they experienced another kind of fear. Now ask yourself this next question. Did that fear drive these men away from Jesus or toward him? Obviously, they were feeling some amount of discomfort. This was scary. This was frightening. They were in the presence of something, someone who was great beyond imagining. They were feeling very small and very powerless. We don't tend to like that very much. Their trained sense of how the world works has just been thrown upside down and all of that is happening in the context of having just had a near-death experience in the storm. I can imagine the flight instinct kicking in if I was there. Maybe I would have been able to walk on the water as I ran for the hills. Like that lizard. Have you seen the lizard? It's pretty cool. But at the same time as that, that recoiling fear... Can you hear the awe-filled wonder in their question? Who is this then? Like, who is this who is my friend? Can you believe how fortunate and blessed I am that I know this man and that he has chosen me? Perhaps a year or so later, there would be another event on the same lake (laughs) with a second storm. This time Jesus wasn't even in the boat. The disciples had headed off alone. The disciples, again, the experienced fishermen, came to the conclusion that they were in a significant amount of danger when they noticed Jesus walking on the water (laughs) toward them. This event takes place in a time when the disciples have had just a bit longer to figure out who this Jesus is. 
to answer their own question, who is this then? And they respond to Jesus in a significant way. We read it in Matthew 14. It says, and when they, Jesus and Simon Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped. Truly, you are the Son of God, they said. They worshipped. Do you feel it? The fear produces the worship. The revelation of, of who this is, is what sets their hearts alight in praise and adoration. You are the Son of God. The fear is attractive. It's a, it's a good fear. To be near to this man is thrilling and life-giving and exhilarating. It's intense. But they want more of it, not less. God being God draws us in. Jesus being a mere man would not make Jesus more appealing. I don't see why people want that to be true. If you could tame him, you would not love him more. Teenage girls with the thing for bad boys got it wrong. His unimaginable, transcendent authority over all things, up to and including over our own souls, is worship fuel. All the things about God that cause this fear, they create worship. Worship in reverence and in awe. This is our God, we cry, when he displays his glory. Now, why do we need to say this? <laughs> there is a thing, a trend, I suppose you could call it, a, a, a cultural trait in our time, which has trained us to expect this to be the opposite of what reality is. In our current context, there is a pragmatic wisdom which says that if you want to pull people into Christianity, then what you need to do is to minimize or avoid the harder edges of our faith and of God's character. That we should focus on the positives. It's very easy to speak about grace and love. But when it comes to describing God's judgment, we grow a little bit more bashful. Are you familiar? There is, this, this, this attitude is, is strangely unique to our times. I'm sure there's been people at all times. But it being such a widespread, normal thing, it just, it just wasn't always like this in the church. And so, it is useful for us to be aware of the context in which we are living. I suppose I, I can't say whether it is a, a symptom or a cause. There's a chicken-egg thing going on here. But things like the seeker-sensitive movement have been very influential in convincing the church today that this is the way to be, that we should minimize the hard stuff. And for those of you who don't know what that is, the, the seeker-sensitive movement became a thing somewhere during the 80s and the 90s of the late 20th century, I suppose I could say, around the same time as the rise of the American megachurch trend. Uh, these, these people, as a, as a group, 
loosely speaking, they promoted a way of looking at church life. During this period of time, they correctly observed the decline of many church congregations. There's a real problem. Churches shrinking and receding in society, uh, and this generation can remember a time when that was not so. They see a problem. It was becoming painfully obvious that church was, in some sense, retreating in its influence. And they concluded that this decline had taken place because the church had failed to engage with who they called seekers. People who were not yet Christians, but who were interested. The biggest strength of this movement, I should, pray, I should, I should mention their strengths before I get on with this, um, is that they were passionately evangelistic. They had a heart for the lost. They wanted people to meet Jesus and become Christians. Yet, the strategy which they adopted toward this end has proven to be spiritually catastrophic. They said, for the church to grow, we need to become, direct quotes, seeker-sensitive. What that meant was that Sunday services should be aimed not, not primarily at edifying Christians, not at growing you in the maturity of your faith, but instead the Sunday service, the Sunday gathering, should appeal to those seekers. The service should be designed to be engaging and exciting. And that teaching, uh, teaching should shy away from the themes which newcomers were perceived to find objectionable, like sin and judgment and fear that we should only focus on the positives, like love and reconciliation. It, it, it wasn't that they outright denied the truth, please understand. They were Christians. Still are. It's that they selectively edited the message to pretty it up a bit. Kind of, like, kind of like fluffing up your resume to get the job. Have you ever done that? Like I've stacked shelves in a warehouse, so I'll call myself a logistical efficiency technician. That sort of thing. They did that with the gospel. Some of them went quite far with it. I remember reading one theologian who describes being invited to a conference during this period, which advertised itself as teaching pastors Disneyland-proven sales techniques to grow your church, or something like that. I'm glad to see a few of you giggling, because it's not a good thing. <laughs> it's a, to, to my mind, it's a bit like there was a generation of pastors that read that bit in 2 Timothy, which said a time is coming when people won't endure sound teaching but would accumulate for themselves teachers to tickle their itching ears. And they took that passage as advice rather than as a warning. Like, itching ears, you say? I can do that. Yeah. Let's give that a go. Now, as you may have intuited through the subtlety, I'm not a fan of that trend. I could spend a long time listing my grievances, but let me share with you just two, two fundamental ones that are relevant to today. The first is this movement was wrong about where spiritual health comes from. They trusted in skilled leadership in the place of God's word to grow the church. If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to our previous series on trusting in the Lord. And secondly, they were wrong about the effect that the fear of God produces. This was the period of time when I began to engage with Christianity. 
eventually becoming a Christian, and I can remember being told at my church, which would have described itself as a seeker-sensitive church at the time, that seekers didn't want to hear that kind of stuff, which I found very confusing (laughs) because I fit the definition of what they would have called a seeker, and I was very interested. (laughs) I was going to church because I wanted to know what the Bible says. I wanted them to teach me so I could decide if I believed it or not. I didn't want to be sold something. I just wanted to understand. And in the great wisdom of God, it turns out that the justice of God became one of the most significant factors in convincing me that Christianity was true. It was evangelistic. The message of sin and the fall, in particular, helped me to understand my life and led me to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. I needed to hear those bits. Now, I, I bring all this up for a very good reason. This movement and its assumptions have been immensely influential. I don't often hear people use the language anymore. But the change has been made. It's just in the air now. This is the assumed value and assumption behind a lot of the ways that modern churches function, particularly in regard to preaching and worship. For example, if you find yourself thinking things like, I find it difficult to reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. In one sense, you're in good company. People have had that difficulty since ancient times. And yet there is also a very real sense that our view of who God is has been shaped by this unbalanced modern preaching that has definitely contributed to our having a mistaken view of who God is to the extent that when we encounter him in the Bible, we feel confused. Who is this God? This isn't the one I thought I knew because he's been misrepresented. And secondly, what about worship? Trying to pick songs for this series. I'm so sorry, Luz. It's a bit tricky. Not a lot of songs being written on the fear of God for churches to sing. There's a few. It's better than it was, say, 15 years ago. But it's not a popular theme in modern Western worship. Now, compare that scarcity of the theme in today's worship with the biblical book of congregational worship, the book of Psalms. And what do we notice? In the Psalms, themes like celebrating God's judgment of his enemies are everywhere. Can I, can I give you an example? Let's read one. Psalm 75. I'll start at the bit that's the song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Direct quotes, God speaking. At the time that I appoint, I will judge the earth, I will will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps its pillars steady. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. 
End quotes back to the psalmist. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. (laughs) I want a song written on verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is worship, do you understand? Praise. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is biblical worship. This is the adoring of God's revealed character as it should be. Who is writing that song today? If you have an example, I'd love to hear it afterwards. You can tell me. Please understand that what I'm saying, if I haven't made it clear enough, is that in that difference, we are wrong, not the Bible. If this is not your understanding of God, your understanding is incorrect. You've been misled. Now, as with last week, there is a balance here which we must mention. We don't want to be reactionary and throw the baby out with the bathwater. God does make it clear in his word that he prefers mercy to judgment. It's absolutely true. For example, he sent the prophet Ezekiel to preach to the exiles after the fall of Jerusalem. And the message which he sent Ezekiel to preach contained both warnings and yet also invitations to grace for a people who had acted wickedly and earned God's wrath. Ezekiel 18.23 says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Because that's a rhetorical question, I'll answer it. He doesn't. (laughs) He would prefer that we would turn from our ways and live. He says it again in verse 30 uh, and, and, and heading onwards. He says to the exiles, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Do you feel that? Our God prefers mercy to judgment. There is a mistake to be made in either direction. You can present God as the angry tyrant in the sky, completely loveless and hostile, and that is a distortion. You can also present him as sky Santa. All acceptance and love, no authority or holiness. And both of those visions of God are untrue. The God of the Bible is full of both grace and truth. 
There is a base level principle that sits here for all of us, which is this. God is perfect just the way he is. He has no flaws. Everything about him which is true is praiseworthy. We should praise him for his love and his mercy because it is very real and very precious. The love and mercy of God sent his son to rescue his enemies and to make them his children. That is praiseworthy. He also crucified his son in order to justify forgiving any one of our sins in his holiness and his judgment. And that is praiseworthy. We worship God when he shows his mercy in the salvation of the lost. Baptism is a cause for worship. We also worship God when he displays his just judgment in the destroying of his enemies. That is cause for worship. We're not delighting in their death. We're delighting in our God. Those two things aren't equal. Like God, we would prefer mercy. I would rather worship at a baptism than a funeral. But both are cause for worship. Fear of the Lord produces worship. Let me give you a few ways this ministers to us really quickly. And then to finish, we're just going to read one last biblical passage that, that demonstrates how all of this looks in real time. Here's, here's a few ways this, this principle lands in our lives. We ask ourselves, what, what good can come from embracing the attractive aspect of the fear of God? The first is this. Embracing this prevents us from becoming stunted disciples. If you're reading the Bible and you can't fathom why your God would act that way, you've been stitched up. We should not be more in love. We should not be more in love with a figment of our imagination than we are with the real God who has revealed himself. We don't get to invent who God is. How ridiculous. When, when someone says, I can believe in heaven but not hell, <laughs> my next question is, on what basis? Where'd you get that idea from? And the answer is, though they may not know it, on the basis of my imagining. That God does not exist. You made it up. It's an idea which is floating around in culture. I liked it, but that is not real. We must be careful not to put ourselves into the position of becoming God's creator. Do you understand? The fear of God prevents us from doing that and rather causes us to embrace God as he is. Because our God is perfect, we need the real thing. Any, any deviation in our understanding from who he actually is, is to our detriment, to our harm. 
not to our benefit. The real God is worthy of worship. And you and I, any one of us who has come to him as Savior and Lord, we are being made into his likeness by the process of our salvation. We are becoming like him in his moral character. To reject some aspect of who he is, it cannot possibly lead to healthy outcomes in your development. You'll become a crippled disciple, unable to experience the fullness of God's blessing. Here's another reason why this is important. It's important because it ministers to victims. A healthy fear leads us to embrace God's justice as beautiful. And it is. And that truth ministers to some of us especially. Those who have been persecuted or harmed by the sinfulness of this world and are not yet seeing earthly justice. Those of us love the justice of God. It is a promise which they cherish. The persecuted church draws very real and urgent strength from the prophecies concerning God's future judgment of this world. They need that message. The fallen nature of this world means that I am a sinner. That's why justice is scary. What I'm afraid of is the, the, the truth that I have earned his punishment. That's the bit we don't like. But if you, in order to avoid that difficulty, reject or downplay God's justice, then by accident, you also have to throw out the comfort and hope that justice brings to the suffering. As Christians, we do not pursue vengeance for ourselves on this earth. Why? Because, ju because justice doesn't matter? It's not it. No. We don't pursue it for ourselves because we hold as precious God's promise that the day is coming when he himself will right all wrongs. And it is sufficient that they face his wrath. They need not face mine. The day of perfect justice is coming. Romans 12, 19 says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is because the Lord will repay that I do not need to. Do you know that? There is a direct connection between the two. And to those who have been the victims of the sinful actions of others, the knowledge that God is good and that he will hold all things to account is good news. So long as we also keep in mind the reality of our own sinfulness and don't use the sin of others to justify our own. The hurting need to know that this is not how it is meant to be. And they need to know 
that God is doing something about it. And a day is coming which will completely resolve all the unresolved problems. One day, all things will be made right. There will be no one in heaven waiting for God to fix the past. All things will be made right. And that will be accomplished either through the salvation of sinners by the blood of Jesus or the judgment and condemnation of sinners by the justice of the Father. And we will worship for both reasons. Lastly, and very simply, the reason why this is important is that it feeds my soul. It feeds my soul. I actually have a need for awe. It is necessary to sustain me. It is like eating. The fear of God has a rejuvenating effect. I need, as a Christian, saved by grace, to regularly feast on the transcendent glory of God. Yes, he is near. Yes, he is accessible. Yes, he is kind and merciful. And he is also almighty God. And I need to encounter him in that capacity. The worship fuel of an encounter with God and his holiness drives so much within the life of faith. I mean, every sermon for the rest of this series will be an example. An encounter with God in his holiness and splendor is transformational. Do you think that Isaiah, after his vision of the throne room of heaven, was more excited for the life of faith or less? It is not possible for me to have an encounter with God in his holiness and splendor and to remain unchanged. We need it. We need it often. It feeds my soul. Now I promised that we'd finish this way. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19? To finish today, let me read to you one last description from the Bible of God's judgment creating worship amongst his people. The prophetic book of Revelation before chapter 19, has described for us the reckless, violent sinfulness of Babylon and its leader, Jezebel. We don't need to speculate which world leader or nation will ultimately fulfill this predictive prophecy. My money is on literal Babylon. You don't need to agree with me. The important detail for us is that the actions of Jezebel and the nation are described in the persecution of God's people. She has, in chapter 18, possibly 17, made war on the Lamb. In 18.3, we are told... That all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living, and her streets are filled with the blood of martyrs, the prophets and saints slain on earth. Towards the end of chapter 18. And then we read, by the end of chapter 18, that God destroys her in an act of terrifying judgment. She is punished. Immediately after her destruction, we change our attention and look away from the earth where Babylon is being destroyed and instead gaze into heaven itself into the throne room in the presence of God and we see the response in heaven to the destruction of Babylon. The Apostle John writing says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we long to worship you as you are. A made-up God, an idol, has no power to rescue us. But you, the true and living God, are who you say that you are. This is our God. We worship you this morning in your mercy and your love and your covenant 
faithfulness which has rescued us. We rescue you. We, we, we worship you for your willingness to rescue those who are your enemies, to grant to them pardon and mercy, to take your enemies and to make them your sons and daughters. We worship you this morning because you do not treat us according to what our sins deserve, but in Jesus. You have removed our sin from us as far as east is from west. Father, we worship you this morning for your just and true judgment. We do not know as we ought, but your wisdom is wise, your foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. Your weakness is stronger than our strength. You know what you're doing. And all your works are performed in faithfulness. We need you, our merciful Savior. And we need you, our glorious Lord. Thank you for rescuing us from any belief that we need to choose between different parts of who you are. Rather, give us everything about you which is true. Reveal yourself to us in grace and in truth. Rescue us in power and meekness. Save us in love and justice. Lord, would the fear, the reverent awe, the adoring wonder of being in the presence of this God, would it fuel us? Would it revive us? Would it change us? Would it cause us to worship? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.